Well, buenos dias, chicas de Every Woman's Grace. I think I said, good morning, ladies of EWG, but I'm not really sure. So, But I wanted to make sure I welcomed everyone, because everyone is truly welcome to learn about God and to soak in his words. So I apologize for butchering your beautiful language, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad everybody's here. We're finishing up our fall semester. Can you believe it? This is crazy. Time just goes so fast. But we're finishing up this semester with John chapter 6. And this deals with Jesus as he was finishing up his Galilean ministry. Now, I have had the distinct privilege of completely being marinated in John chapter 6 for several months now, since September. And I have found myself seeing elements of this passage everywhere I go, even when I've been driving. Because recently, while I was driving in my own hometown, I noticed, some of you may have seen this too, this very large sign or banner that crossed a bridge that crossed a major boulevard in our town. And it said this, chasing the high. Well, I'm not really sure what it was referring to, but I completely understand the just attention-grabbing title that they had. Because we humans, we do chase the high, don't we? We chase it through relationships, through adventures, through career ambitions, through successes, or even the successes of others. I have to tag along my husband. I don't have that many to claim. Through popularity, through drugs, through sex, through physical attractiveness or physical fitness, uh, through health. Oh, and then there's the everybody's favorite, through food. It's always been this way. People will chase after something that they believe will benefit them in some way or other. You know, it isn't that everything I just mentioned is bad, because it's not. But it's just that the pursuit of those things can sometimes turn into something that actually distracts us from what's important. And then the distraction becomes the important in our lives. And we see this in the crowds which followed Jesus in John chapter 6. They're just too distracted to see who Jesus is. But remember back in John 1, we actually understood who Jesus is. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. He's the eternal Son of God. He is God who became flesh in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme representation of God who has come in human form. And John introduces us to Jesus, the Word, the eternal God in human flesh. And he gives us everything that we need to know about Jesus. The book of John gives us seven miracles, two of which are in chapter 6, and seven I am statements, the first of which is in this chapter. The signs that Jesus did were evidence that he was indeed deity. He was truly God's beloved son. The signs that Jesus did were plentiful. Lots and lots of signs were given. The evidence, as we learned last week in our courtroom, that the evidence was indisputable and it was plentiful. These miracles were actually so frequent and so convincing that the last verse of the book of John 21, 25 says this, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books which were written. So ladies, open your Bibles today to John chapter 6, and we're going to begin this chapter with these words. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Okay, verses 1 through 4 immediately set the context for us sometime after this. Because between chapters 5 and chapter 6, there was a gap of 
perhaps six months to a year. And we can deduce this from the events of the other Gospels. Now, if you look up behind me, I think there is a slide coming your way. Um, This is a slide of the events of chapter 6 from the different Gospel writers. And we can see a more complete picture of each account in the Gospels when they're told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each wrote under the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and each brought their own unique perspective to bear on the event. It's kind of like a a scene in a movie, you know, how you first see it from one angle, and then the camera shifts around to another, and then yet another. It's the same event. It's the same conversations, the same characters, but the camera is set up in different places to give a more complete picture. And Mark 6 gives us the account of Jesus commissioning and sending out the 12 apostles to preach and to heal. They've returned, and they're reporting back to him when we get to John chapter 6. And the disciples were excited. They were excited to share with Jesus all that had happened while they were gone. They had been very, very busy. They had been so busy, it says they didn't even have time to eat, if you can even imagine that. Well, Jesus himself was also very weary. He was weary from all the teaching that, and healing that he had been doing. And he was also experiencing the growing opposition of the Jewish leaders, as well as, as the continual misunderstanding and the faithlessness of his chosen 12. Added to this, on top of all this, they just found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod Antipas. And we find that out in Matthew uh, chapters 4 and 14. And John the Baptist was beloved to all of them. So they were exhausted and they were mourning the death of John the Baptist Time alone was needed. So Jesus does what he often does. He takes his weary disciples by boat to a remote area on the east side of the Sea of Galilee near Bethsaida. Luke and Mark tell us about that. Now, the Sea of Galilee, as some of your Bibles will say, or Tiberias, is a huge body of water. And it's commonly referred to as a sea, but In actuality, it's more like a large lake. It's a little bit like our Great Lakes, kind of. And around AD 22, it was renamed the Sea of Tiberias because these prideful Caesars, they kind of had a habit of naming things after themselves. So at the time of the writing of this gospel, which was perhaps around AD 95, it was being referred to as Tiberias. It's again called the uh, Sea of Galilee now. Jesus had been on the western side of Israel, but he has traveled to the sea. He's headed east where they crossed the northern tip of the sea, headed to the eastern side of the sea. So Matthew tells us that this crowd was coming from all the towns and villages everywhere. And Mark 6.33 says that they were walking and running. They were running along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to meet up with Jesus. Now, this was no small run because it was a distance of about eight miles. So from their vantage point on the boat in the sea, Jesus and his disciples could see this crowd growing and growing. Since it's almost Passover, which are uh, portion of scripture also informs us um, there's a, this was a very common route for those traveling to Jerusalem. So there would have been even more people added to this crowd at that time. Today, we get to look at the feeding of this crowd. And this miracle is one of the most well-known in Jesus's ministry. You might remember it from your Sunday school days, or even if you weren't churched growing up, you've probably heard about it. It's the fourth miracle that John writes about in his gospel. The first, if you remember, was the wedding at Cana. The second was the healing of the nobleman's son. And the third, which we learned last week, was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, which Ruth just covered for us. So this one, though, is the only miracle 
that is repeated in all four Gospels. So it must have something extremely important for us to learn. It's a massive, massive miracle involving a massive number of people. The entire multitude took part in this miracle. They witnessed it. They ate it. It was personal to up to perhaps 20,000 people because Matthew 14, 21 tells us that women and children were there in addition to the 5,000 men. But who were these followers of Jesus? It says in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on those who were sick. This crowd who's chasing Jesus demonstrate for us today several reasons why people may follow Jesus. Because he'd been healing the sick, right? Everyone, everyone wants a healing. We do today. In fact, as I was preparing this lecture, my husband was bitten by a snake. Albeit a very small snake, a snake is a snake. And we prayed for healing, and we went to the ER, and we got him checked out, and don't, you can rest assured he is fine. But put yourself for a moment in the place of these first century people, because there were no hospitals with ERs. There were no medications, no antibiotics to treat your baby's ear infection. There were no there was no antivenom to counteract a snake bite. There were no surgeries for those broken bones or for those knees and hips that keep going out on some of you out there. Nope, there were, if you got something in those days, something that we would consider to be maybe mild today, it, it likely could have killed them. Factoring in the very high infant mortality rate at the time, the life expectancy of one living in the first century was 35 years. So people were sick, they were injured, and they were without hope. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He is the ultimate healer. He's compassionate. And he has proven again and again and again, there's absolutely nothing that he cannot heal. So it's understandable why these crowds are so enormous. The more that Jesus healed people, the more that people talked about him, and his popularity at this point was at a fever pitch to the dismay of the Jewish leaders. So some were attracted by the healings, but some were attracted by the signs themselves. Now, we all know what a sign is. Like, what's the purpose of a sign? Because we use them all the time, right? They direct us to something else. So when you see the sign, let's say, to the off-ramp to Disneyland, you don't stop the car, get out and say, hey, kids, here we are. But that's, in essence, what these people were doing. Jesus had showed them signs pointing to something amazing, something life-changing, something eternal, but they just wanted the temporal signs. They didn't want the Son of God or the kingdom of God They didn't want salvation, and they surely did not want repentance. They didn't want sound teaching. They wanted the healings. They wanted the signs. But the signs were pointing to something. He had a message for them. His signs demonstrated his power. They proved his deity so that they would listen to his words, that they might believe, that they might have eternal life. And that's our key verse this year, isn't it? John 20, verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, there have always, always been various reasons why people follow Jesus. Some wanted healings, and some wanted just to see a healing. These are the thrill seekers. They want to just be part of something really big that's going on around them. For this lecture, I researched how to build a crowd. And this was actually on the list of how-tos. Create FOMO, which is fear of missing out. Some of you are like that. I know that. But some of these followers were just there to be part of the excitement, to witness firsthand what was everybody was talking about. But up on a hillside, 
Jesus had gathered his disciples to listen to his words, to be in his presence, to soak him in. They needed him. And he gathered them to himself. The well will run dry without this special time with Jesus, sitting with him, soaking in his words. And we need the same thing. We need to be in his presence, just like the apostles. We need to be with God, and we need to feed on his words, sometimes alone and sometimes with other believers, much like we're doing this morning. Well, he soon sees this crowd. He's up on the hill with them, and he sees this crowd growing beneath him. And Mark 6.34 tells us that Jesus felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Luke adds to the story and tells us that Jesus then began to teach them and to heal them. So just imagine the sight. Jesus sees this crazed crowd running towards him. Some probably not even know why or where they were running to, like stupid sheep with no one to lead them, no one to protect them, to care for them, or to feed them, just running towards him. And Jesus has compassion on those who are chasing the high because he knows where they're going to end up. 1 Kings twenty two seventeen says, So he said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. So evidently, in spite of his exhaustion and this planned time of rest and encouragement with his disciples, Jesus then spent the whole day healing the sick and teaching the multitudes. What most of us would consider an interruption, Jesus considered an opportunity. Jesus demonstrated the necessary balance between time alone with the Father that he loved dearly and ministering to people because his compassion was so great and his desire to do the will of his Father was always, always in place. So after a whole day of healing and teaching, it was evening. And the disciples come up to him and they say, send the people away to go get some food for themselves. We see that in John, Matthew, and in Mark. But in Luke 9, 12, it says a little bit more. It says, now the day was ending and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and the countryside, and obtain lodging and provisions. For here we're in a desolate place. This huge miracle is going to begin by focusing in on just three individuals, Jesus, Philip, and Andrew. And he begins with Philip. He says, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? Well, why did he ask Philip? Well, he was from Bethsaida, which was in the general area, but it really doesn't matter why he asked him because John tells us that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He was going to test Philip. This is not a temptation. We know that God will not do that. James 1.3 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. A test, though, a test is different. A test reveals what you know and what you don't know. It identifies strengths and it identifies weaknesses in the one being tested. And how does Philip do? Well, not so well, because he tries to figure it out on his own, doesn't he? And you know what? It just doesn't calculate. First of all, there is nowhere to buy food. And even if there was, and even if they had eight months of one person's yearly wage, which they probably did not have, there still would never be enough for everyone to have even a teeny, teeny, tiny bite. This is an impossible situation. But Philip had forgotten that Jesus had just turned the water into wine. He was trying to figure out a solution, but there was none. Philip was very strong in analytics, but he was very weak in faith. This test revealed that he did not believe that Jesus had the power to supply so great a need. The Lord's tests 
are always meant to push us a little bit further in our faith because staying static is not enough. He wants us to grow in our faith and he wants others to see what the Lord can do through us. So then Jesus turns to Andrew. Now, Andrew, if you remember, he has a history of bringing people to Jesus. Remember in John 1, he brought his brother Simon to meet him. He said, we found the Messiah. This time, he brings a little boy with this tiny child-sized lunch, and he brings him to Jesus. And let me just put it to rest here. This little guy is not the point of the story. Lots of people over the years have tried to make this little boy the point of the story, but he is not. He's simply a poor, small child with a teeny tiny offering. John always wants us to focus on the Lord. Jesus didn't need the boy, but he was gracious to use that little bit that was offered. And it was truly a very little offering. It was kind of like the lunches that my own dad used to pack for me. We'd go hiking in the Sierras and he would always give me the same thing. One can of sardines and a little handful of saltine crackers. It was a tiny offering from a tiny little person from the poorest of society. And we know he was poor because only the poor people ate barley bread. So Andrew offers, well, here it is. Here's a little lunch. But what is this for so many people? Neither Philip nor Andrew responded to Jesus by affirming his power to provide. Jesus chose to provide from this tiny and humble offering, though, because there's no person too little and there's no person too insignificant that Jesus cannot take their feeble offerings and their tiny contributions and use them. God always, always has the power to provide. The fact that he's willing to use us in the process is the amazing part. And this should really give us a sense of ourselves, of how truly insignificant we are and how gracious and how merciful our Lord is to use us at all. God made each one of us in this room the way we are to use for his glory. But we have to be where he wants us to be, and we have to be willing to offer whatever little we have. But this mass of humanity before him had a need which was impossible to meet. And there was not anyone in that mass who was sufficient to meet that need except one, Jesus Christ. And John reveals to us in this miracle that it is impossible for us to meet our greatest need. And we are insufficient to add anything to what Jesus can do to meet that need. So I suppose the question at this point would be, what is humanity's greatest need? Is it food? Is it health? Is it an easier life? Or how about the need du jour is, is it solving our environmental issues? This day, this particular crowd had only one need that was on their minds, and it was food. This is true about all of us, isn't it? Honestly, we can be led by our own pressing needs and our own pressing desires. If you're hungry, Food is what you want, right? It's what consumes you. That's what you go for. If you can't pay your rent, though, money is what you want. If you're lonely, a friend is what you're looking for. These may be needs, but they're very far from our greatest need. Because we're told in Romans 3.23 what our greatest need really is. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So feeding the multitudes seems impossible. What about saving all of mankind? Acts 2.23-24 tells us this man, Jesus Christ, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus has met the greatest need in human history. He has conquered death. 
You know, think about it. What, what were these people chasing him for? For food and for healing. So why do these things, why are these the things that commonly consume human beings? Well, I think it's because without them, we die. And Jesus offers life by his grace through faith, which he mercifully gives to each one who believes. And what Jesus does next, I think, is so full of grace. Because after all that he's been through, he does not reprimand them for their faithlessness. Did you catch that? I love that. He simply tells them what to do. He says in verse 10, have the people sit down. And because it was springtime, the hills are covered in this thick, soft grass. And Mark tells us that the Lord instructed the disciples to have them sit in groups of 50 and hundreds so that they could distribute the food. The Lord will take chaos and make order from the chaos. And now the miracle. He gives thanks and he multiplied that tiny little snack into a feast for the multitudes. The crowds that day were not just being fed. They were seeing the glorious power of God. The Lord could have He could have had fish just dropping from the sky or showing up like boom in the hands of all 20,000 people. He could have had the loaves pop up from the ground and lay there kind of like reminiscent of the manna, remember, in the wilderness. But Jesus didn't do it that way. He transformed a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish because Jesus also takes the created life and transforms it. Just as Jesus transformed that little offering, he transforms the lives of those who believe. The disciples of Jesus didn't have a thing to do with any of this incredible miracle, but God gave them a part in distributing what Jesus had done. What a privilege it is for us to serve the living God. So on a hillside, That day, sitting on green grass with that sparkling blue sea in the background, thousands of people were fed. And I'm guessing it was probably the most delicious fish and bread meal they'd ever had. Jesus grew his disciples' weak faith a tiny bit that day because they were obedient to him. Alistair Beggs says that it is on the pathway of obedience that faith is forged. We have another slide, ladies, because God grows our faith through our obedience. And the people ate as much as they wanted. They ate until they were completely satiated and they were full. Jesus' resources are infinite and there is nothing wasted. This is the way that God always works. It says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us. Now, some of you may have been asking, why were there 12 baskets left over? I don't know. It doesn't say. But God gives enough to meet our needs, not more and not less. His purpose, evidently, was beyond just feeding the multitudes, but he would meet the needs of his 12 disciples later. Perhaps it was a reminder of who has the power to provide for them. So how did these people, these people chasing Jesus, um, how did they respond? Well, they want an earthly king. Remember, the point of the miracle was so that the people would see that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. But instead, they saw him only as a king, an earthly prophet and an earthly king. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who came into the world. They were, no doubt, remembering the manna from heaven that God had sent to Israel um, in Exodus 16, and also the prophet that was promised to Moses by Yahweh that he promised he would raise up in Deuteronomy 18. The masses had been fed, but they wanted more. They wanted a king. This was going to be the ultimate welfare state. We're going to make Jesus our king, and we're not going to have to worry about a thing. We're not going to have to worry about those awful Romans, that we don't have to think about illnesses, and we don't even have to feed ourselves. But Jesus knew their plans. It says in verse 15, 
knowing that they were going to come and try to take him by force to make him king. You know, it's really kind of laughable when you think about this crowd who wants to coronate Jesus as the king of their teeny tiny little part of the world. Jesus preached the kingdom of God everywhere he went, ladies. The kingdom of God is a major theme throughout the whole Bible. It's mentioned at least 126 times in the Gospels alone. In Luke 13, 18 through 21, it says this. Jesus uses two analogies to explain his kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air nestled in its branches. And again, he said, it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seda of flour until it was all leavened. What he's saying here is that his kingdom will not come suddenly, all of a sudden arriving in all its splendor and all its glory, but it will first come like a teeny tiny little mustard seed, something that's almost no one would even notice. But when it's planted in the right soil, it will become a great, magnificent tree. Jesus gives the assurance that although his kingdom will begin very, very small, it will end in greatness. It's also like the leaven in the flour. The people expected the kingdom would come by external means, by force and by strength. But Jesus says, no, his kingdom is going to grow quietly in ways that nobody can even see until it is diffused into every nation, every tongue, and every people. The people wanted the kingdom now for themselves. But Jesus came quietly, and his kingdom rose from humility. And it will spread to reach the entire world, not just Israel. And that's why we're sitting here today. We will never usher in the kingdom of God. Not on this earth. There is no social program, no world leader who will usher in God's kingdom. It will be ushered in at the appointed hour and only by God himself. It is a real kingdom with a real king, a king who reigns. The Lord Jesus Christ is that king. But there's nothing new under the sun because these followers were desperate to get out from under this oppressive Roman government, and they wanted a new leader who would make everything great again. Oh, how humanity falls into the same trap again and again. But our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's in 1 Timothy 6.15. It was not the proper time, and he did not need, nor would he allow them to make him king. So from the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, we learn that to meet every person's greatest need, human ability is never enough, and divine provision is abundant, but only through the power and the person of Jesus Christ. So next, um, we're going to skip quickly to Matthew 14, 22, because it really gives us some interesting details about what happens next. It says immediately, immediately after this, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, Jesus told the multitudes to go and boom, they went all 20,000 of them. You know, if you remember, this is a bit similar to John 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple. Remember that? No one can resist the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 33, 9 says this about Yahweh. For he spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood. Jesus made the disciples leave, which indicates that they did not want to leave him. But you know what? They obeyed him. So in Mark 6.52, he informs us that they did not understand about the loaves, but that their hearts were hardened. Now, they weren't hardened like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
but their hearts were still a little bit hard, just hard enough, a little too hard for all the truths of God to penetrate into them. Their faith was there, but it was a very little faith. But they had enough faith to be obedient, and they did as commanded, even though they didn't know why or what they were headed for. Faith and obedience always go hand in hand, just like Abraham went even though he didn't know where he was going. And that's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So now the day is spent. The crowds have been dispersed. Darkness has set in. The disciples are now crossing the sea and they're headed toward Capernaum. And Jesus goes up onto a mountain by himself. So I just find it interesting. What did Jesus do when there was great pressure on those he loved to do something that he knew was contrary to the will of the Father, he sent them away from the pressure, and he prayed. We know he prayed because Matthew and Mark tell us that he prayed. You know, Jesus often spoke with his Father away from people. Luke six twelve tells us that Jesus prayed all night long before choosing his 12 apostles. And in Mark 135, it says, after healing the sick and casting out the demons, he rose early in the morning to go to a desolate place and pray. Here he is again, praying. And verse 18 says, and the sea was stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. And if you look on the slide behind me, I've got a photo of the Sea of Galilee. I actually took that photo in 2016. The Sea of Galilee, as you can see from this, it's still well known for its sudden, violent windstorms, which can quickly make this, this lake dangerous. It's because this lake is 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills. So when the sun goes down, the air cools. My husband explained all this to me. The air cools, and cold air is heavier than warm air, so it drops, making the air from the west rush over the hillsides down into the lake area, creating this wind. The wind can churn up the lake. So God, in his ever-present rule over nature and providence over events, he caused the wind to stir up that day. Though even the wind and the sea obey him. Psalm 107, 24 and 25 says, they have seen the works of Yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep. He spoke and set up a stormy wind, which raised up the waves of the sea. So Matthew and Mark help us to see a very, a fuller picture. And Matthew says that the boat was already three to four miles away from land and it was being battered by the waves for the wind was against them. Remember, they're headed west and the wind is coming from the west, so they're going right into it. Mark 6:47 says that instead of heading toward the shore, they'd actually been pushed toward the middle of the sea. But up on a mountain, far from them, Jesus, he sees them. And Mark adds that Jesus saw them that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And it was about the fourth watch of the night, which means it was between 3 and 6 a.m., um, informing us that they had been struggling now for many hours, maybe six, eight hours, whatever. It was a long time. Do you think, like I think, that there may have been a connection between the disciples struggling painfully, trying to get across, but getting nowhere because of this fierce storm they'd been sent into, and Jesus, alone with his Father, praying for them, probably. Because what does Jesus do right now for his children who are struggling, who are struggling painfully to overcome something, but they can't overcome it because of some storm in your life, perhaps? Jesus prays. Isaiah 59, 16 says, And he saw that there was no man and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then, in, then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
And John 17, 9, we're going to get to that. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Today, ladies, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you. Romans 8, 34 says, who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And it's then that Jesus goes to them. The Lord's disciples, they were in the dark, they were in the storm, and they were struggling because God had sent them there. And, you know, believers, we have storms, right? We cannot always explain why they come suddenly upon us. Sometimes we know. Sometimes we know that we've brought them on ourselves, right? But sometimes God sends us right into them. But Jesus, ladies, puts his feet right into the storm with his children. And this is one of the reasons that James could honestly say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This has always been true about God and his people because Deuteronomy 31.6 says, be strong, be courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Jesus will never leave you in the midst of your storm. And Jesus saw them way before they saw him. They didn't even know he was watching them. They only could see the waves and they could feel the fear as they strained at the oars. Then Mark 6, 48 gives us an insight that was really at first difficult for me to understand. It says this, seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them in about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he was intending to pass them by. What? Why would he send them, pray for them, come to them, and then intend to pass right by them? Well, the short answer, once again, is, I don't know. (laughs) Because we're not told exactly why, but I will give you two interpretations from two extremely reliable theologians, one being our own Pastor John MacArthur and the other being R.C. Sproul. The first interpretation is that His intention was to cause them to recognize him as deity and to awaken their extreme need for him. A little bit like Jonah in Jonah 2. The second interpretation is that his intention was to pass by them, to strengthen their faith by seeing the glory of God pass by them, which was similar to Moses, remember, in Exodus 33, 18. Pick One, I don't care, because both state truths about God. He sometimes sends trials our way to teach us about our own weakness and to reveal the glory of his power. The glory of God is never absent when we are in his presence. And as Jesus approaches the boat, walking on the water, through the crashing waves and the violent wind, they yell, oh, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, and they're really terrified. They were so focused on their fear that they didn't even recognize the Savior whom they knew and loved, that he had come to them. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I. This is the Greek word ego, and it's only used in the emphatic. It's most often used in the Gospel of John as when the Lord Jesus is referring to himself. In other words, Jesus isn't just simply saying, hey, guys, don't worry, it's me. No, he is emphatic. It is I. And his words immediately calmed their fears. And then they recognized him. God's words are like that, aren't they? They give clarity to our lives. Well, John doesn't mention Peter walking on the water That really is a great story. And I would encourage you to go home this afternoon if you haven't read it yet and read that part of the story in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. And we really love that story, don't we? Because so many of us can relate to Peter 
and his exuberant faith, which was immediately dashed by the concerns of this world, and then how Jesus just reaches out and takes hold of his hand and asks him tenderly why he doubted. Why does John leave that part of the story out? Well, he is ever highlighting Christ, the divine Son of God, because Jesus alone is the one who can calm the storm. He alone is the one who can save those who believe. He alone is the one who can deliver us to the other side. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So in verse 21, it says, So they were willing to receive him into the boat. It actually says, they were overjoyed. They were giddy with excitement to receive him into the boat. Jesus will not leave them without his comfort and his help. Yet, he was also causing them to receive him into their boat. In verse 33, we see that Jesus calmed their fears before he calmed the storm. And isn't this the way God often deals with us? He often changes our hearts before he changes our circumstances, doesn't he? So he sent them. He prayed for them. He saw them. He came to them, and he spoke to them. Then he was willing to enter in and to save them. The promised presence of the Lord Jesus Christ removes all fear. These 12 apostles could now say, along with the sons of Korah in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And it says in verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, this was absolutely astonishing to them. What an incredible 24 hours they had had. They had watched their Lord create food and feed the multitudes. They had seen their Lord walk on water and calm the seas. And now they have been instantaneously transported to their destination. And it was then that they proclaimed, you are certainly God's son in Matthew 14, 33. John's gospel, ladies, wants us to see Jesus. Do you see Jesus when you read this? When mere humans see Jesus for who he is, that he is God, bursting with glory and full of grace, there is truly only one response, and that is worship. It happened at his birth in Matthew 2.11. It happened with a Canaanite woman who went to Jesus, remember, on behalf of her daughter in Matthew 15.25. It happened when the blind man was healed in John 9.38. You know what? It will happen to every single person who has ever lived, even against their own will. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, So at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So back on the other side of the lake, though, that crowd that Jesus had dispersed the night before, they hadn't really gone too far because the next morning they looked for him again. And when they couldn't find him, they hopped into the boats, which had likely sheltered there from the storm, and they hopped in the boats to find him. And when they found him, they were hungry again, and they were very confused. How did he get here? When did he get here? They were asking the wrong questions. They wonder when he came instead of why he came. It revealed the motives of the crowd, and the Lord ignores their questions. But he gives the right answer, doesn't he? In verse 26, because Jesus knows their hearts, he ignores their attempts to skirt the real issues just because they want something from him. So this enormous crowd that followed Jesus bookends this portion of scripture. In John 6, 2, they followed him to see and to experience the signs. And in John 6, 26, they sought him to receive the goods. Well, these followers are thrill seekers. They are chasing the high. The high of the crowd, 
the high of receiving healing, the high of seeing miracles, the high of a comfortable, well-fed life. And this chapter teaches us, us to stop chasing the high and instead chase after Jesus Christ because it's only then that we can say, that we can honestly say and we can honestly give our utmost for his highest. That's what Oswald Chambers so eloquently named his devotion. Or how about God's word? Because he clearly commands us, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might in Deuteronomy 6, 5. John Calvin reminds us of a wonderful truth regarding this passage. He says, Jesus exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God, promising that all other things shall be added to us. If he took care of those who were led to him by sudden impulses or greedy desire, how would he ever desert us if we seek him with a whole heart and a consistent purpose? Ladies, John wants us to know this Jesus. He wants us to purpose to pursue the God of creation. He wants us to chase after him, the healer of sin, the provider of life everlasting, the giver of abundant life who can calm the storm and who can direct the wind. He will feed his people and he will remove all fear until we reach the other side in the glory of his presence. But only if you know him, only if you believe him, and as we're going to learn next week, only if God draws them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that instruct us so carefully and so intimately. We thank you for letting us see a glimpse into who you are and what you do for us. Oh, Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to the things that we chase after that will never lead to you. But give us gratitude also for the abundant life you've provided for us. Lord, we know that there are some here that don't know you. Please open the hearts of any here who have not yet turned to you and who have not yet believed that you are the only one who is able to take care of their greatest need the forgiveness of the sin that separates them from you. Oh, Lord, I pray also for those who are here today who are experiencing a very difficult trial, a storm of life of any sort, Lord. Please help them to look to you alone, to you alone for their help and to trust that you're with them and you will provide everything that is necessary because you're compassionate. And your power is abundant. Lord, help us to leave this day and glorify you as you have commanded us to do. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.